Maybe it's because this movie features a space war, uh, but I was thinking about how uh, we recorded Parasite uh, the day before Veterans Day, and we didn't even talk about how the the son of the uh, the Kim family in, in uh, Parasite. Oh, was it, was it the army? He, he's referenced to to be a veteran. Yeah, yeah. South Korean services, and that's why he speaks English so good. And uh, man, it really is screwy. Uh, how even it doesn't really matter what country it is that uh, the service is supposed to be a leg up uh, on the class ladder. And uh, yeah. having that that knowledge and like fluency in a second language is not getting him the capital he needs to move forward in life. It's kind of docked up. I just wish we talked about it since yeah. we recorded like the day before Veterans Day. And uh, yeah, solidarity with our veterans, I guess. Yeah, fair to mention. Is Korea one of those nations where you are mandated to serve? I don't think service is compulsory. No, it's not like Israel. Okay. No. I'm just curious. Yeah, you would think, though, that, yeah, with the DMZ, right, there's always a need for, for troops, but I think they get enough uh, infusion of bodies from the U.S. that, that I, I, this would be news to me if it was compulsory. I, I'd be, uh, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised, but I certainly wouldn't be shocked. Yeah. But anyway, I just thought that was uh, you know something worth mentioning that we didn't get to on Parasite last week. There yeah. was so much to get to on that episode and so little to get to on this episode. That it's overflowing to this episode. Exactly. They're... Hi, welcome to the Good Trash Genre cast where three dum-dums sit around a table to talk about the films you'll never discuss in a film studies course. I stole Dustin's job. Uh, today we're talking about Alita, colon, Battle Angel. Uh, last week we cheated with Parasite, a film that will almost certainly appear in film studies courses. Alita's less likely to, and as part of our uh, 2019 catch-up marathon that we're doing to round out our viewings for the year before we get, get down to top ten time. So that's what we're talking about on the show this week. Uh, I'm still Dalton. I'm still Dustin. I'm still Arthur. All right, well, um, I'll know, give you your job back well, now. Why don't you warn the listeners about we'll what's, ha- what's happening? Shit, all right, I guess I'll keep going. Uh, so, uh, as I've previously mentioned, and I'm going to, wow, I don't know how Dustin does this every week. This is about the time where Dalton zooms out onto his phone. Yeah, uh, no, this is where I start out. checking my notes and make sure I, I have things to say on the episode. Uh, yeah, so what's going to happen now is we are going to be talking about Alita Battle Angel. Uh, to do that, we're going to have to do analysis, because that's the kind of show this is. Uh, we do like to do reviews, because it's helpful to know how we feel about a film before we analyze it. Uh, but primarily, we do analysis here, which means we got to spoil the things that happen in the movie to talk about it. So if you are spoiler-adverse, this is probably not the show for you. Alita Battle Angel is less new and less exciting than Parasite, so we were very spoiler-light last week until we got to our, our main bulk of the show. Uh, this week, we probably will not be gentle with the spoilers, there's not a whole lot that happens in this movie anyway, so not a big deal. But it's important to know that spoilers are going to happen. So you've been warned. Uh, here's how it's going to go off. Arthur's going to tell you what happens in the movie. Then the three of us are going to say what we like about it, what we don't like about it. Then we're going to try to figure out what Elite Battle Angel would look like in a film studies course. How would you teach it? What would you teach alongside it? What would your class syllabus look like? And then we will move on to the bulk, the meat of the show, the thing you're here for, analysis, where we do try to figure out what this damn thing is trying to say. Um, that's what the show looks like. Did I do a good job, Dustin? You did a great job. Can I give you your job back now? Um, I was going to quit. Um, oh, no, please don't. <laughs> that's your job now. <laughs> I don't like this. <laughs> So, uh, You've always been here. Oh, God. I've always been the caretaker, haven't I? <laughs> no! So, hey, Arthur, let's hear that synopsis if you don't mind, sir. 300 years after the fall, a major war that reshaped society, humans and cyborgs live together in Iron City, watched over by the rulers of Zalem. Dr. Dyson Edo repairs the cyborgs living in Iron City, including the hunter warriors who act as a police force and the motorball athletes, something akin to roller derby slash football. While scrounging the local scrapyard, Dyson stumbles across the heart and brain of a decommissioned cyborg. He returns home and repairs her. She is without memory, however, so Dyson names her Alita and tries to help her navigate the city. But Alita soon realizes she was initially built for something much more dangerous. Is that a Arthur Gordon original? Yeah, it was. Good. That was a good one. Very good. Good synopsis. Well done. Well, hey, um, Arthur, do you like this movie? (laughs) You know what? I did get a kick out of it. What's uh, your idea to watch this? I, I know. I'm, just, I'm not going to apologize. I quite enjoyed it. Uh, surprisingly, I didn't know that I would. Um, it, it has like a 60 on the tomato meter, so it's pretty divisive, I guess, among critics. I know a lot of people online who actually 
uh, really good at bat for this movie, uh, really get a kick out of it. And I, I did enjoy it, you know, as far as genre stuff goes. I think it's uh, pretty interesting and fun. I, I, I like some of the world building stuff we get. I like that we don't have a 15 minute prologue about how the fall happened and yeah. how we got here because so many dystopian films do that. Uh, so it was a nice break. We do kind of parse it out through the film and some exposition uh, beats or lines. But for the most part, we really kind of go into this world existing and not really getting a full explanation. And I appreciate that about it. Um, I, I think that uh, uh, the, you know, what I do like about it, I think the action uh, is great. We've, we've, we're talking off air as the action in this, especially with the CG is so clean and so clear and so crisp. Uh, what I love about it is that I can follow it. It doesn't look like a bunch of robots battling it out on screen and nothing makes sense. Uh, spatially, it makes sense. Physically, it makes sense. Uh, it's easy to follow. And I, I really like that. And and the effects themselves, I was kind of wondering how they would actually play in the movie after seeing the trailers, uh, the CGI additions to uh, Alita herself uh, and, and her look, as well as some of the hunter warriors. Uh, and I think the effects look really good. I, I think it looks great. Uh, I think that's Jim Cameron's uh, touch. I think that's his kind of... Uh, thumbprint on the film is making sure that the effects and the visuals do work. It's the most expensive Robert Rodriguez movie he's ever made by a lot. Yeah, 170 million budget, I believe, is where this parked. Um, Which is weird because he's always been famous for even his big studio ones doing uh, doing little ones. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I appreciate those things about it. I I, I kind of I like Alita. I think she's a, a fun character. I I, I like. Um, some of the other uh, tertiary characters I like, uh, I can't, let me get his name because it's an interesting name. It's Jackie Earl Hale, Haley's character. Um, oh, Gershwin. Yeah. That Gershwin. was Jackie Earl Haley? Gruishka. Oh, yeah. No. Gruishka was Jackie Earl Haley? It yeah. wasn't Ira Gershwin? No. Oh. Sorry, bud. Okay. Holy shit. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, watch, and I like his, he's, he brings a lot of humanity to this. He's so good. Just goon, this brute. Uh, but the way he delivers, especially when he calls her a little fleet, like there's something very sympathetic about it. Like he thinks he's going to hurt her. He's trying to save her, but he's going to attempt to kill her as well. And, and there's something about his, his performance there and his work there that I really appreciate. I, I don't know why, but I really like that character quite a bit, um, for being just this heavy, uh, you know, that doesn't really have anything to do. Um, I, I like those things about it. Uh, I like kind of exploring this world, um, and I had quite a bit of fun with it, especially the set pieces. I think as far as an action kind of sci-fi movie, it, it works fairly well. From a narrative standpoint, uh, it, it's it's messy. Um, it's two hours, and it's one of the rare movies where I, like, I would have liked about 20 to 30 more minutes of this. Uh, just because they rush so much. Um, the, the moment from Watts finding uh, Alita's body thing uh to reconstructing her to her kind of living in this like in this world like happens incredibly quick and she is very quick to accept that she's kind of become the child of this maker um without questioning really anything it's just like oh hey you're my dad i'm gonna run around now it's very fast and there's really no uh sitting with that or waiting for that or parsing that out it's just a very quick thing and then even her in the city and meeting this guy and she's like oh i've got a favorite food now it's chocolate haha <laughs> Um, those things happen very quick and it's kind of, it's not oranges, it's chocolate. Cause I've eaten two things. They kind of, uh, they do a, a, a bad job of just kind of running over the kind of interesting or, uh, I can't think of the word, uh, interesting moments that I think need to be parsed out. And then they kind of flesh out the stuff that's not that interesting. Uh, there's a whole subplot with the boyfriend that goes on way too long, uh, that I don't think needs to be there. And so there's kind of an unbalance in it. It's paced a little wonkily. Um, but overall, yeah, I, I had fun with it. Um, and so it, it, we, we wanted to find something that was kind of talked about early in the year before in game. And this is one of the big ones that had discussion around it. Uh, I also thought about uh, cold pursuit, uh, but that's a much different discussion uh, yeah. that we'd be having today. Uh, and so this, this inspired quite a bit of online, uh, discussion and talk and controversy because it kind of became championed, uh, by all the. Uh, troll boys uh, who hated Brie Larson and Captain Marvel and wanted to stick it to Fox uh, Disney by going to see this Fox movie that Disney owned, um, which was also funny and it's right. Uh, and I'm going to say, I, I, I think this holds up pretty well amongst some of the lower tier Marvel stuff. As far as a genre movie, uh, I, I enjoyed it. I'd probably watch it again without hesitation. I, I had fun with it. And I want to see a sequel. I kind of want to see what happens um, with the uh, spoiler alert. Ed, uh, Ed Norton. God, that Ed Norton <laughs> reveal about crap my pants. Yeah. 
They do such a good job of hiding that who well, that well, character is. Well, great pair of spectacles can really make a good disguise. I tell you, know, you what, I, I was judgy against the '50s comics, and now I have to take it all back. I know we make fun. We make fun of Clark Kent. And nobody can tell. You know what? You know what? There it is. You know what? Uh, I remember. Uh, I, I think there was something about him saying he had to, you know, essentially sell his soul to make motherless Brooklyn, uh, and so he had to. Uh, Agree to appear in a bunch of movies, and someone's like, "Oh, that explains why he's here." Yeah, that uh, would definitely explain yeah, that. Uh, which I thought was funny, but uh, yeah, I, I'm just kind of curious. I'm also more curious about ro- uh, motorball, um, which is a interesting sport. I'm not quite sure how it functions. It's kind of NASCAR adjacent. Yeah, it's like a roller derby. It's a race. It kicks uh, but there's a, lot a of ball. Ass. Yeah, it's like pod racing. You don't fully understand it, but it's a lot of fun, uh, and at least some really cool set pieces here in the movie. Um, so you know what? Overall, yeah, I, I it's it's fine it's solid uh, i i enjoyed it more than i thought i would and so it's not changing my life it's not gonna be on top 10 lists by any means but i wasn't mad about it all right well thank you very much for that mr arthur gordon hey um dalton do you like alita colon battle angel yeah it's fine that's pretty good uh can't believe i'm gonna say this i could have used more jai courtney it's kind of kind of it's kind of excited when he showed up who was he uh, Jay Courtney's Captain Boomerang from Suicide no, Squad. No, I mean in this movie. He's just like a, a, a rando one-off motorball player uh, or one of the Hunter Killers or whatever, huh. Hunter Warriors. He's very briefly in passing, uh, and I was just like, oh, hey, that's weird that he's in this, and then he was gone. Huh. Uh, can't believe I said that, but for some reason I found myself excited to see what he was going to do in this movie. Uh, yeah, it's it's fine. Uh, I'm, I'm right there with Arthur. I think this movie is great looking. Uh, I, I was also really curious where the uncanny valley of this was going to settle into. Um, Rosa Salazar does a really great job of giving a performance underneath that motion capture, I feel like. Um, it doesn't hurt that they have made her eyes gigantic, which does a lot of work for the character of Alita. Uh, and there's a whole myriad of issues uh, behind using performance capture to create a photorealistic anime girl. We'll We'll get to that. But uh, I, I think this movie looks great. The production design of this film is really cool. Like every single cyborg in this damn movie, I just could, I just want to look at. I want to look yeah. at a 3D character model. I want to spin it around. I want to look at the sprockets and the gears. And I like that they all look different. Yeah, they all have a very unique look. Yeah. There isn't a there. There's a cohesiveness to the way they're portrayed. Uh, but you're absolutely right, Arthur. Yeah, there there is a individuality. Uh, that gets imparted in, into all the cyborg characters, I think is really cool. Uh, and the ways in which they still... My favorite is uh, one of the early ones we get. It's just this real buff guy. It's not Gerwishkin. It's the other buff cyborg we see. Uh, just really cool looking. I, I love all of them. I love every robot I've seen in this movie. Uh, even uh, What's-His-Doodle from uh, Deadpool and uh, Game of Thrones. The eight, yeah, 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 that yeah. guy. Uh, can't think of his name. Oh the main... God. Yeah, I can't think of his name either. We'll get to it eventually. His design is so cool. Uh, Ed Screen. There we go. Um, yeah, the, just the, this like really intricate uh, inlay on the back uh, of his torso is really cool. Um, the, the fact that he gets one of the most human faces centered in the most like intricate bodies is really kind of cool, too. Um, and as Arthur said, the, the action here is really crisp and clean. Um, that said, boy, howdy, is this plot sweaty. Ooh, hooey. We just it, it's just one thing happens after another, and there's no real sense of cause or effect or a chain of uh it, it's it's very easy to go to bathroom breaks in this movie uh because scenes don't really flow into each other very well, and that does lead me to believe that something gets left on the cutting room floor because uh, Arthur's right there um it's, it's two hours, but it moves good and it, it you know there there's no real lag to it, but it does always feel like we're missing texture scenes that we really could be using. Um, especially because Alita is such a cipher as a character. Uh, and, you know, that's can be a good thing or a bad thing. You know, it's okay to have a lead be a cipher. That's not a deal breaker for me in a film. But what is a deal breaker for me is unwarranted uh, parental child uh, bondings. And I just, that so much of this movie is hanging its hat on Rosa Salazar and Christoph Waltz is unfortunate for the both of them because they're both doing a great job with what they have. Um, you know, Christoph Waltz gets beat up a little bit for his, uh, you know, his American films, uh, just kind of always being in one mode, either 
nutso or kindly or kindly nutso. Um, and he's doing some variation of uh, a pretty standard Christoph Waltz performance in this. But I don't know, I like him in it. There's a, a gentleness and a grandfatherliness to him. And the idea of this doctor swinging a big rocket powered hammer is a funny image that I <laughs> like seeing. Yeah, he can't quite manage it, but it's he tries an, his best. It's an extremely yeah. anime visual, right? A tiny, yeah. uh, like a, a, a physically small framed doctor with a gigantic weapon is, is such a silly anime image. And that's really what you get out of this film, if nothing else, is a, a, a silly. Uh, silly anime images like brought to life in, in really kind of complexly art designed ways with cutting edge uh, special effects. It's, it's cool stuff to look at. It really is. It's just there's not a lot of there there. And every moment that goes by from the end of Alita to now, I, I just it, it's running through my mind like sand in an hourglass, y'all. I there's just I can't remember a damn thing about this movie. And uh, I'm a I'm a pretty good movie watcher. Uh, you know, I'm not going to toot my own horn or anything. I, I like to think I follow plots and character arcs fairly well. And uh, when I can't remember them, it's usually because there's not a whole lot there. And uh, I think that's my, my final trouble with this film, the thing that holds me from liking it. Arthur mentioned being ready for a sequel. I, too, would want to see more of this. But I think a big problem of this film is sequel tee-up. Like, just too much of it. And just not enough resolution to the story we get. We yeah. really, it really does feel like we left off. The end of this movie feels like the end of a, a two-part pilot yeah. for a TV show, yeah. and that's really frustrating. And you know, I know we're going to get more and more of that uh, as the studio system just keeps trying to launch new franchises. That's that's kind of a common occurrence throughout the last ten years. You get a movie that doesn't feel like a whole movie. And I'm just losing my patience for it, I think is a big part of uh, why I resist this film, outside of some thematic concerns I have with it, uh, which we will definitely get to, because problematizing this film's kind of part of watching it. Yeah, for sure. But, hey, it looks cool as hell. And I'll tell you what, there's nothing cooler than a, a, a torso, a person who has but only one limb, pressing their body up into a jump, and then breaking their arm off in somebody's face. That's a That's cool. It's metal. That's really cool. Yeah, I like it. I like it a lot. You know what else I like? I like a, I like a I like a purple uh, motorball armor suit, tight yellow ninety nine. Visually striking imagery. This movie looks cool as hell. I just don't really feel much about it, and that's that's unfortunate because I do. I think it looks beautiful. Mm-hmm. That's that's all I got to say. I'm done. All I'm, right, I'm running out of gas. What do you got, buddy? Uh, so I I like it, but I've seen it maybe yeah. a dozen times. You know, it just it. We've seen it, it a couple of times in the course of making the show. We've watched this movie before. Yeah, I mean, it's so it's it, it's it's that same sort of you know lost child, surrogate father finding their way, and there's a great big heavy, and you've got it. We a, watched it like three weeks ago. It was called AI. Yeah, or before that, when it's called Jupiter Descending, or before that, you know, I mean, on on she goes, and this movie doesn't have half the interesting ideas that Jupiter Descending and, has. And, and and you're 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 a cyborg, Alita. You're a wizard, Harry. You're a Jedi, Luke. You're yeah. I mean, it's you're just, the one, Neo. Yeah, it's, it's that thing. And I mean, you know, I'm all about. That. I love those movies, and I like that. And I think this sure. is not a bad entry in it, but it doesn't really narratively go anywhere adventurous. And I'm out in terms of world building. I think that's fascinating. We're talking about cyborgs. We've got this cool kind of Philip K. Dick thing going on. This Blade Runner thing where you know can a cyborg love a human can a human love a cyborg cool all right tell me more about that yeah we're, we're in a post-ethnic post-cultural society because everybody got crashed onto earth together like that's a cool idea yeah so i mean there there are things and i mean when we get to analysis there are there's some thematic reads that the film sort of opens itself up to that are that are interesting and of course the, the, the cultural sort of waves that it made um at the moment of its release are all interesting but overall this is a film experience yes the cgi works it works better than you'd expect uh yes it looks great yes the fight scenes are fantastic Fantastic. Junkie XL's score is incredible. Like, all of those things are working really well for the film. And I do, uh, and I like Christoph Waltz, too. Uh, I think he's doing a good job in this, and I, I just generally like him. I have a lot of goodwill uh, for Christoph Waltz uh, as just an actor. I just, I, I like his performance. The supporting cast is rounded out by people yeah, like yeah. Jennifer Connelly, Mahershala Ali. Yeah, yeah, yeah. this is a stacked supporting cast. And, and and yeah, and then you know, eventually, sort of revealing this future Darth Vader of Edward Norton. I mean, I'm all about that. <laughs> so funny. I mean, I can't get over how silly that is. Yeah, Ed Ed Norton, Ed Vader, uh, is going to be great uh, in the future. <laughs> Oy. 
<laughs> I don't think this movie's getting a sequel. I don't know. If, well, it made, it made some. It made profit. We'll go. I, you keep talking. I'll it, consult Box Office Mojo. Yeah. It, it profited, but it did not profit. It's, it made four or five hundred million worldwide. Yeah. So off uh, two hundred million budget. One seventy. Yeah. 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 So it doubled it. But, well, you double that for product for marketing costs. So yeah, it, it did, did have okay. a lot of marketing. It, it broke did, even. It, it, did, yeah. it broke even at least. Yeah. yeah. And then I don't think it's going to Godfather Part Two, John Wick Part Chapter Two, kind of you know really spin up a sequel in a way. So it may or may not end up getting made, which is too bad. But that being said, yeah, it's interesting. There's a lot of stuff going on with it, but, you know, uh, it, it is that same Joseph Campbell-esque hero's journey. And uh, I'm not bored with it, but I do want something new, something really arresting. And I've got – it's got its most Eisley, and it's got its – you know, sort of mini heavies, you know, oh, Captain Phantasma, we're going to fight you first before we get, you know, I mean, I've seen this, and that's kind of what my brain kept doing as I watched it. I think the most interesting thing Dustin and I discovered was Junkie XL looked nothing like we expected him to look. What's Junkie XL look like? Uh, a Middle-aged, bald, white guy. That's kind of what I expected. From Sweden or something? Or yeah. In, yeah. I, I mean, that I, I pictured a lot of hair, not no hair, but yeah, I, otherwise. I just thought Junkie XL was like a DJ. Like, yeah, uh, I thought he was a black dude. The, well, no, most DJs are Swedish guys. <laughs> yeah, they're they're yeah. all they're all uh, Northern European guys. Yeah. I think Daft Punk, Diplo, yeah. So That's, Marshmallow is that yeah. one? Yeah, I Dead mean, Mouse. Yeah, if if you're not DJing for a, a, a rap, there's a reason rap, we wear those masks. Group. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I would too. I don't blame them. You should. It sounds cool as shit, but yeah, you don't want your face in front of it. All right, so there you go, dear listener. Those are our biases. They're like meh. Uh, yeah. That's cool. But, but meh, yeah. But somewhere between meh and yeah is where our biases, I think, seem to lie. Let's expand the syllabus. So you are putting this film in a film studies course and therefore are teaching a class and you're using Alita Battle Angel as a text, perhaps primary, perhaps secondary, uh, to teach that course. I am going to go to you first, Arthur. Ooh. Ooh. Ooh la la. How shall you teach this class in French, apparently? <laughs> no, uh, I'm actually going to extend Dalton's course from last week. Uh, we're going to talk about the the class struggle well, uh, on the okay. upstairs downstairs. Uh, we're going to talk about Marxism in the movies, uh, critical essays on class uh, struggle in the cinema, edited by uh, Mary Lee and Kevin Durand. Uh, Durand, not Durant. Um, but uh, that'll be the kind of text, a series of essays, just exploring uh, Marxism in film. Uh, you can't talk about class struggle without talking about Marxism. Yep. Um, but from there, I want to specifically focus on a trend in 2019 in class warfare. Oh, uh, in the upstairs, downstairs. So we would start with uh, Alita Battle Angel, which does have it. It's not as, you know, on the surface as some other movies, but it's definitely there. It's, There's oh, yeah. this idea of the commodification of the, the motorsports players and the hunter warriors and, you know, all the people doing the dirty work are down here on the earth and everybody else uh, profiting off it is up in uh, Salem upstairs. Uh, and so I think that's there. Uh, and then from there, I'm going to go with Ready or Not. Uh, oh, yeah. Samara Weaving. Uh you know, just working class girl trying to survive with a bunch of crazy millionaires and billionaires. Uh, and so uh, from there, we're going to go with uh, Ryan Johnson, Knives Out. Ooh, a uh, movie which Arthur and I have seen. Yeah, it pairs well there. Uh, it's a lot of fun, but also is kind of looking at uh, the class struggle with a bunch of bumbling idiot uh, millionaires. Uh, funny enough, we're going to go with Parasite next, uh, which also deals with uh, the working class and a bunch of bumbling uh, idiot millionaires. Uh, and we're also going to look at uh, Joker. Uh, uh, as well in this Whoa. course. 2019 is nothing if not rife uh, with texts about money. It's like people are worried about it or something. Yeah, man, it's almost as like we're on the the edge of a worldwide economic collapse that's going to line up with an international refugee crisis or something. Or maybe there's a specter haunting our system. Something. Hmm. Uh, I don't know, but the Statovian doesn't seem too far away. Uh, and so uh, I think that's where I want to take it. I want to look at it that way, especially... Um, it's always interesting to see trends pop up in film uh, mm. through over the course of a year, and so you know, this was one that's pretty prevalent, not and not just in America, but international cinema as well. And so I think that's where I would take this class. All right, well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. How would you expand your syllabus, Mr. Dalton Stewart? <sighs> Y'all, I want a robot arm. I want one so bad. I can't tell you how badly I wish I had. What are you going to do to that arm. robot arm? Well, he might start picking things up by himself and opening his own, um, you know, jam jars. Yeah, I'm tired of having <laughs> to ask my wife to do it for Let me. Get one of those claw things that. Grabbers. Oh, I've got one of those rubber ones. Really, I, I just want one. I want a targeting eye. I want a robot arm. I just, robot. just let me have it. Transhumanism's tight, y'all. I, I don't know what to tell you. I like cyberpunk so much. It's so good and it's so cool. And anytime I see a cyberpunk story where the lead's a gal, I wait on pins and needles. 
because that can go one of a couple of ways. And unfortunately, Alita Battle Angel broke the way I was afraid it would break. Uh, so we are going to be talking about an idea that's come up on the show a lot in our history. Um, the name of the class is going to be the story of them boys who like them girls that are also guns. Uh, it, this has been a trend in cinema over the last 20 to 30 years or so um, that smacks of uh, an imagined progress, right? Uh, we're making progress in Hollywood because now you can make an action movie that stars a gal. And that's cool. I, I'm not going to sit here and act like that's not very cool because mm -hmm. it is. The problem is a lot of those movies are still made only by dudes. And it's not a problem that dudes make them. It's a problem that it's it's just a room full of guys writing the movie. It's a room full of guys doing the art design and the direction. It's top to bottom. This is why representation matters on both sides of the camera. We talk about that on the show. Uh, so to really start us going down this road, we're going to have to talk about... Uh, a term called the fighting fuck toy uh, that Dustin has brought up on the show uh, without speaking, without speaking. He's had to tell me about it so I can talk about it on the show. Uh, if you want to go way back into the archives, we'll get there. Uh, but uh, that, that comes from a, a work uh, called uh, consumer culture and the gaze. That was by Carolyn Heldman uh, and her co-author whose uh, name I didn't write down. We were in a hurry. Holmes Holmes. We couldn't get the first name. So I didn't bother to write down the second. Jay name. Holmes. Thanks, Arthur. Sherlock. So anyway, it comes from this uh, consumer culture and the gays uh, work that they did, but it got expanded by Hellman uh, on her own in this this work called uh, The Hunger Games Hollywood and Fighting Fuck Toys. Uh, and, and it is the, just this idea about the both hypersexual and the hyperviolent uh, female figure in action cinema and how that exists not as a tool of like feminist liberation, not a tool of empowerment, but often just a tool of looking at somebody sexy. And to be fair, I, I want to say up top to the men who make these movies, because we are going to mostly center on uh, movies made by men in this class, because it is male filmmakers that have kind of perpetuated uh, the, this trope and this archetype. Um, to give credit where credit is due, that's kind of what male action movies are about. It, it's not to say that there isn't a body objectification, and, and a, I would say at the very least a... Uh, subtly homoerotic uh, tinge to male-driven action films. The camera lingers on Arnold Schwarzenegger's pecs in the 80s. Uh, the camera lingers on Keanu Reeves' immaculately cut suits in John Wick. Yeah. Like, John Wick's sexy as hell. I, there's no argument you're going to get out of me about that. Sex is part of action cinema, even when it is only the subtext. The problem that comes about when you try to package your movies about being uh package your film about being about a strong woman and all you do is have her do a bunch of murders you haven't really made anything that different from a male action movie you've just recycled the same product we've been making and i think therein lies the problem uh so we're going to talk a lot about james cameron and robert rodriguez in this class because they are two filmmakers that have really uh had a lot uh in their career that kind of lines up with this idea. So we got to talk about T2 judgment day, one of the finest action films ever made by human hands. Uh, and we got to talk about Sarah Connor and Sarah Connor being a less interesting character than we give her credit for. Um, I haven't seen Terminator dark fate, big addendum there. So we're not going to reference that at all in any capacity. Uh, I don't know if there's a valuable character growth there, but in Terminator two, part of what makes that character work is that she's a bad mother. I think there's something really good about the fact that Sarah Connor is only good at the protecting side of, of motherhood and not the nurturing side of it. Uh, that allows Terminator 2 to be very interested in this way in which, like, taking on violence will kind of deaden your heart a little bit. The problem, though, is it gets into this idea that, like, violence is for men, and when a woman takes on the tools of violence, she, like, must by necessity cast off her femininity. Uh, which, again, these ideas about gender representation that exist in a female-led action movie get very dicey very quickly uh, because we start talking about these things like nature, or about, like nurturing and uh, these, these traditionally uh, feminine uh, attributes or these ideas that are in our culture traditionally feminine. So it gets dicey super quick. I don't want to linger on That's it too much. That's not to much. say that Linda Hannibal is not sexy, too. She is incredibly sexy, right. yeah. And that is part of the problem of the fighting fuck toy, right? Is it, it says this character doesn't get to be feminine except in the ways that make her pleasing uh, to, look, to look upon for people who like female bodies. Uh, so next we got to go to uh, Planet Terror. Uh, the first time Robert Rodriguez put a gun on a gal. 
Um, in a film that features a really absolutely fantastic performance from Rose McGowan. Rose McGowan's performance as Cherry Darling in this movie is great. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, I think it's an all-time great action movie performance, uh, but it is, again, part of a larger problem. And I think that film's kind of less problematic than some of the, the other films we're going to be talking about, maybe even less than Alita, uh, but I think it is still part of this conversation. Uh, and then we are going to shift to uh, Quentin Tarantino's Kill Bills Volume 1 and 2, not just because he's a collaborator with uh, Robert Rodriguez, uh, but also because Kill Bill does kind of sit in the same spot. And this is a film that I think of these, uh, and, and all of these films that I've mentioned have been are name-checked by Carolyn Hellman in, in her essays, but I think mm-hmm. I think the Kill Bill films get the closest to doing something with this, uh, the closest at maybe saying something uh, about the nature of violence and, and the nature of trying to uh, exist in the world as a woman and exist in, in a world of violence as a woman. I, th- I think the film has ambitions towards towards actual character uh, statement. That said, though, Uma Thurman looks great, and mm-hmm. it, it, it sexualizes her less than some of these other films I've mentioned, but, you know, look, when you're a guy and you're straight and you're in charge of the camera, it's sometimes it's going to happen. Like, and this is again, as we say, the importance of representation behind the camera, because it's important to have the decision-making about what a film looks like, have a lot of different POVs because you might do something. It didn't occur to you. You were doing, and that's, that's not, this is not a class that comes out swinging that says every guy who's ever made a movie about a sexy, badass uh, lady is a perv, but it is to say that we are all perverts, and it's important to acknowledge the ways in which our perversions might be bad for culture when we're making a mass media. Um, and I, I think really that's the distinction here, because, I, I, again, I'm not going to stand around and lob grenades, and, uh, you know, I'm not comfortable lobbing. But when you, you're making a film that is not an art film, not an experimental film, but is a unit of content made for a big studio um, that a lot of people are going to have their eyeballs on, I think there's a responsibility uh, towards responsible filmmaking, right? And uh, if we're only ever telling the same stories and only implementing the same tropes, we're going to get stuck. Uh, so the last film we'll close out on is a film that's come up recently uh, on the show, uh, Karen Kusama's Destroyer. Uh, which lets Nicole Kidman be uh, a real uh, burnout McNulty uh, type, just your your prototypical washed up cop, uh, and the ways in which it interrogates her her copness and her motherhood, uh, and actively tries to make Nicole Kidman look as as weathered and haggard as possible. Uh, definitely seems to be subverting some ideas about strong female characters and, and women in action cinema. Um, so that's the class. We're just going to try to deconstruct these ideas, why they keep coming up, why we have you know three or four uh, male filmmakers uh, that really keep going back to this idea. Because again, I I think there is a a good impulse there. I think that's that's why I'm I'm resistant to immediately like uh, impine people's dignity. Right? We're not saying that these filmmakers are bad guys. We are saying that they have ideas, but they're just not thinking hard enough about how to execute those ideas. And that's that's the conversation that I think needs to be had. Fair enough, fair enough. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Um, I want to move the conversation to a much more meta place, and I want to talk about the digitality of film uh, in the 21st century. And so we have a character who is played by an actress in motion capture, but is entirely computer-generated on screen. And uh, and so there's a couple things that are going on. One of the books that I would recommend for this particular course um, is Jay Hoberman's Film After Film, in which he suggests now the moment that we find ourselves in in the 21st century with digital filmmaking is uh, that the that the history of cinema is now the history of animation. That that's what, a really interesting idea. What we're doing right now. Um, I'd also recommend a book I I just read a big chunk of uh, for a class, and I was trying to get the first name of the author. And it looks like I'm not going to have it. Is Rodewick is the last name, but it's called the Virtual Life of Film, uh, in in which uh, she argues that there's like a fundamental ontology to the original cinematic if, image. In this, she cribs quite a lot of uh, Andre Bazan's idea, the onoma- ontology of the photographic image from Andre Bazan, which you find in parts in his What is Cinema Part 1 book, if you're going to check that out, uh, trying to find it there, dear listener. Um, and in that, Bazan argues that what happens with the photochemical process is a representing, a capturing of the pro-filmic moment. There's a way in which there you are recording things that happened. Now, 
Bazan and others are quick to say cinema, of course, involves manipulation and, and staging of those elements, but there's a way in which you are encountering something of a factuality when you encounter the cinematic image from the photochemical process. This is old school film because films aren't made on film any longer. Rodewick continues with that same idea and begins to suggest that there is a fundamental um, sincerity or um, authenticity that is uh, part and parcel of the uh, photographic image that is lost in the digital image that indeed the digital image can be unmanipulated but because it is so easily manipulated there is this idea that perhaps there's there's less i think the term honesty in uh this kind of filmmaking that it is that what we see now in the moving picture image is not greater and greater representation of reality and reflection on reality but the digital image lends itself to the the depiction of fiction the depiction of fantasy and it might be a way to begin to explain the sort of glut of the marvel movie and fantasy film i mean i'm looking at you lord of the rings i'm looking at you the matrix i mean this is much older than just the sort of recent iteration but all of those coincide with this cgi um revival or not revival renaissance that we've experienced and so i just want to wrestle with that question you know what's really interesting about that question is you know i'm thinking about the early adopters of digital right you think about michael mann who in the mid-2000s like deploys it for extra realism Mm -hmm. right it's it's interesting to to think about digital uh, being divorced from the photochemical process and that divorcing us from the reality of the image or something like that because you know michael mann early on is using digital to to make it look grainier, to make it look shittier by well, design. Right? Immediacy is another thing that it accomplishes. I yeah. think about Quran's Children of Men. That long, there you, go. you know, you can use single... digital for realism, though. Yeah, yeah so it can, it can be done, and sometimes is done. But there's a way in which its um, its credibility is fundamentally always challenged because of how manipulatable those images are. And so this goes into where we are in this uh, sort of surveillance society in which we live. So the uh, the ramifications sort of expand. So no matter what appears, even if there is video, even if there is a recording of those events, there's always going to be objectors who are going to say this is manipulated, this is not authentic. That that something about the moment of modernism and the moment of having film. Uh, you know, realized as a p- potentiality for media expression, this different media translation has evacuated some of the uh, truthfulness or historicity, at least, I guess I might say, from the, the, the fundamental thing. And so that's just a really fascinating set of questions. Yeah. And so Alita Battle Angel is a great example of that particular kind of thing. We could talk about the digitally projected uh, Star Wars Episode One. We could look at uh, Jurassic Park, where we have these integrated things uh, working alongside us. We could look at the opposite of Jurassic Park and look at Who Framed Roger Rabbit, yeah. in which uh, sort of the artificiality is trying to be heightened, but there's yep. also some digital play that's at work there as well. And you can go back even into Tron, those sort of first digital experiments uh, into this mode of filmmaking. I'm not quite you know, married to any of my choices here in terms of uh, what other films we might show. Well, I'm going to throw in, uh, let's do Collateral, right? Let's do a Michael Mann from from that era where he is using digital to kind of give you that life, night on the street sort of feel. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, so have Children of Men if we want to really come back to it. Or um, even the uh, the, the single-take expansive uh, fantasy history film Russian Ark which is an 80-minute single take in the Hermitage Museum in uh, in Russia. Those are examples of other possibilities, or the David Lynch shift to digital, which is very different in tenor and tone and intentionality than uh, what you might experience you know, in a John Favreau film, for instance. Uh, so those are, the, those are the questions that... I, at first, I, I was a person who was not interested in this, because there, there's a sense in which sometimes it is... Um, the old guard of the discipline. Yeah, that's, I've been thinking about that as you've been talking. It does feel like some real fuddy-duddy shit. And there is, there, are, there is something fuddy-duddy to it insofar as we used to have cinema and now we don't. Oh, we used to have analog. Right, yeah. you know, and like this, this sort of hipster aesthetic that goes with that mm-hmm. or this, uh, you know, I, we, I like the way movies were being made during New Hollywood. I don't like the way movies are being made now. Yeah. And which is some of the, that Martin Scorsese, Scorsese is this cinema debate that continues getting mentioned on this show. And, and I'm like, I'm, I'm pretty uninterested in that. I don't really care. Moving image, uh, entertainment 
is my jam. Is the thing I want to talk about, and I'm 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 indifferent to modes of expedi- exhibition insofar as yeah, sure, it's great to see a thing in cinema, but I don't think I'm impoverished when I see a film at home. No, and you know when I watch it digitally instead of projected through celluloid, which doesn't happen hardly at all anymore anyway. And I don't think it's a big get to go see. Frankenstein on 35mm, it does look different, and I do get sort of the texture of the initial filmmaking process, but I don't gain anything more from Frankenstein than I did from watching it off my DVD copy at no, home. You probably, if you, if you chase down a Blu-ray cut, you probably got a better version. Yeah. You got a better restoration. But that being said, I do think that sort of ontological um, artifactedness, and again, the sort of credibility factor sure. of, of digital versus film is interesting because film... Though manipulated, even early on in cinema history, though manipulated, you could sort of count on the fact that there was something in front of a screen and what you were seeing is what was pictured. And uh, that that was a certain authenticity, certain veracity to that. And so that pictures did provide evidence for what took place. I mean, pictures are how we came to the conclusions that we came with, say, the JFK assassination, though that was not without its own conspiracy theories. Boy, was it. Um, that being said, it was the images that, that sort of brought home our understanding of the Kent State Massacre or of uh, the napalm bombings in Cambodia or issues you know, concerning uh, the civil rights movement. All of that stuff was brought home because— Abu Ghraib, I mean, on and on it goes. Right, yeah. So the, 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 the filmic image is important in a way, but yet there is a way in which there is a always contested ground that the digital image holds now. And so I want to move Alita into, like, this isn't real. That's not that actress. And it is. Yeah, it's a complicated conversation. So, yeah. I, we've kind of begun doing that thing that we have do, we do in the show. Let's, let's, let's go ahead and get down to business. It's business. It's business time. And, and I think it really does. And I, I think we have to move away from the fuddy-duddy conversation, though. That's that's the thing. Is like, oh, it's just not my kind of movies. You know, I don't care if they're fantasy movies or if they're sort of realist, you know, yeah. depictions of of kitchen sink dramas. I, I like movies. We're both pretty. Uh, are not, but all three of us are pretty uh, famously on board with all kinds of movies. Yeah. I've never been able to get caught up in the debate of, you know, I got to see it in 70 millimeter projection at the, like, I don't care. I like to, if, you know, if it's, uh, if somebody, if other people are doing it, yeah, like, I, I like to make a, it's an event. It's just, you know, it's, it makes going to the movies feel like a production, which it often doesn't anymore. Bigger screens and louder sound is cool. Sure. But not, re- it. but not required. No. It means nothing to me, and it's not—it's not essential. Yeah, and I, I think that's that, there, that, that there's an essentialism to some of these arguments about yeah. film as opposed to um, digital that I don't think is, you know, I just don't think it's honest. I don't think it's really true. Um, no, the, the closer com- and you know to circle back to the Marty thing that you referenced and that we've been referencing on the show a lot because that's what the world's talking about. The world of film, at least. Yeah, it's it's not about digital. It's not about analog. It is really more about storytelling, right? These are the actual conversations that are being argued about is what's a story look like? What's a story shaped like? What What's a film supposed to – how much story is one film supposed to communicate? Yeah. That kind of stuff. And, and, and that's a different – I mean, again, and yes, digital does lend itself to certain kinds of stories. But I'm thinking about uh, Koganada's uh, 2017 Columbus. Columbus. Oh, such a good movie. It's so, such a yeah, good movie. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's, it's absolutely shot on digital. Yeah, it is. But it's utterly – I mean – Plain. Plain and unadorned and I think in a way in – the, in the sense that it seems like Rodewick mentions is truthful. It's a truthful story. Now, is it production? Yes. Is it performed? Yes. Are there things that are alighted? Yes. Are there moments when panes of glass separate us from parts of the experience of our characters that distance us from our characters? Yeah, and that's fascinating because it does sort of show us the the impossible gulf of subjectivity, and I'm all for that. And so there are artistic licenses there, and it's not realist in the sense that Taxi Driver or Mean Streets, you know, going back to the Marty Pills. Uh, But that being said, it's just a, it's a digital film, but it's not a digital film in the same register as John Favreau's Iron Man. Yeah, well, I mean, look, it's important to remember that all cinema is a lie, right? And I, you mentioned that already, and you mentioned that some of those conversations that are happening in these articles reference this. But you know, you ever seen the set of let's uh, we don't need I would the set of any film. It doesn't matter digital or analog; they look fake. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sets look fake as hell until you put them through the filter of a camera and then a screen, and then they look real. 
movies are made to look real at 24 frames a second, right? I mean, this is why um, Ang Lee's having such a hard time getting uh, the, this high frame rate thing to kick off because you have to relearn how to make cinema because if you shoot it in digital the way we you know if you shoot it digitally the way you shoot a sporting event like if you're shooting in a the highest frame rate that your camera can capture you can see the seams of the filmmaking and i think that that there's no better reminder than that that all film is fake Mm -hmm. there's always a lie going on in the making of a film it it both tells the truth and lies at 24 frames a second exactly yeah and i think pretending that one is a better truth teller than others is kind of a dubious at best conversation. I mean, I, 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 I am a little persuaded by it is harder to lie with one than the other, but it's never been impossible. No, and, sure. And it's been achievable. And, I mean, that being said, I mean, film has always had its difficulties in overcoming its, its, its sort of, you know, bona fides to realism. As African-American actors began to be cast more often in the 60s and 70s, cinema uh, cinematographers ran into a real problem because they realized that their entire lighting system was set up for white people. And they could not, you know... Um, photogenically photograph African-American faces well, and, and all, relearn how to do lighting. And all the black cinematographers from the 20s that, you know, would have been able to help in these conversations were not working anymore right. by that point in Hollywood. Yeah. And so that's that's part of the problem is just sort of realizing. And so if you've, if you ever noticed in the, some of these 70s and 60s movies, if you take a look at the African-American characters, there's a reason why they look the way they do is because they really didn't know how to, again, photogenically uh, photograph uh, skins with that level of pigmentation, right? Hey, this is something you can hear a lot of. Uh, oh my gosh, uh, the writer director of Beale Street could talk in uh, Moonlight, Barry uh, Jenkins. Thank you. you. You, Barry Jenkins, talk a lot about this in the you know the interviews he was doing around Moonlight uh, and and the lighting of that film, and again the the title of that film coming from the the title of the play that it was based on. You know, Black Boys Look Blue in Moonlight, and this idea of like you know embracing the ways that we all look different on camera. Like there's mm-hmm. there's cool stuff there and. I, I think you're good to bring that up, Dustin, because it does remind us about the inherent artificiality of what we're doing with film. Yeah. So, I mean, that that's we're dealing with a character who is entirely CGI. Yeah, that's Lita. a good pivot point, talking right. about digital and artificiality. How do we feel about Alita as an entirely CGI creation, right? Does it avoid the uncanny valley, and how does the uncanny valley impact like your viewing of a film or a character? I mean, I'm going to say it avoids it. I don't, I don't, I don't find the character uncanny because I am already given that this is not a quote. This is Pinocchio. This is not a quote unquote real girl, right? Um, yeah. So, uh, going back to Haley Hosman and uh, a artificial intelligence from a couple weeks ago, that because I know that, and it's almost more uncanny for Haley Joe Osman to be a real boy and uh you know yeah. play this robot yeah. as opposed to this clearly robot who has the soul of a human being like Correct. for for my money that that scales that valley in a better way yeah i i agree i mean especially i mean you've already referred to gemini man without saying the title sure yeah uh, which is where i think that uncanny valley pops up a lot more because we have a completely cgi character with no motion i mean completely rigid digitally yeah uh and there is a level of unnaturalness to it as this is a supposed to be a human character uh and and elite i'm I'm with dustin i don't never really bothered me yeah there's a there's a weight and a physicality i'm I'm right there with you both and i think a big part of it and you see this a lot in marvel films too uh or any of the you know planet of the apes movies uh you know uh, performance capture and it's it's great that andy circus got to get out there in front it sucks for him as an actor i'm sure to like that that be kind of where he's been pigeonholed but the the performances you get when they're able to animate over a live performance, you get a physicality to these CGI characters. I think is super important. the The fact that there's a a tactile nature with which a body is interacting with a set, I, I think, really does help. Kind of kind of helps the film jump over the uncanny valley. Uh, because yeah, Alita's hair looks really weird. It doesn't move mm-hmm. like real hair. That that was the the one I, I kept. Uh, I watched this with with my the misses, and uh, I kept asking her. I was like, what is it that what looks the worst? Like, I was like, I can't figure out, because I, I knew I was held back by the Uncanny Valley. Like, I, I acknowledged it, but it wasn't bothering me. And I couldn't figure out what it was, and she was the one that pointed out it was the hair. And yeah. the, the hair is a big one. The eyes are the most immediate one, uh, because they're just not proportionate to a human face. Uh, but the eyes are animated well enough that it kind of fools you enough. And, I, yeah, I'm with you guys. I think it works really well, and I think Rosa Salazar's performance is is good enough that any of that uncanny valley stuff gets avoided fairly well. Well, the hair does look synthetic, but she's synthetic. She's synthetic, exactly. So it's okay. It, the, yeah. As you pointed out, yeah, yeah, the fact that she is 
uh, a full what they what do they say a full replacement cyborg or something like that. Yeah, that the only human components her brain and heart helps the film avoid that. You're right. And she's in a in a world of cyborgs. So it, yeah, but I mean, if you'd stuck her in a real world situation, it'd probably be much different conversation. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and, and you know, it goes to show like uh, the. The, some of the other characters, uh, Eliza Gonzalez shows up briefly, um, and then uh, I'll mention uh, him already. I forgot his name again. Uh, Ed Screen. Screen. Poor guy. <laughs> Ed Screen's doing his best. He just gets weird roles because he's yeah. British. Brit- handsome British guys with, like, really nefarious accents just, I don't feel bad for him because, you know, you look great and you're getting work, but, man, do they get typecast. Anyway, those floating faces look more uncanny valley yeah. than, than Alita does, which yeah. I, I think is... Is interesting. I agree with that. Uh, well, we talked about the real boy and real girl stuff, so I guess it's time to talk about the uh, Pinocchio elements of this film, mm-hmm. uh, which are kind of weird. Uh, Alita's a grown-ass woman. She's immortal, in fact. Uh, and the fact that the film just kind of tr- wants us to accept that she accepts Ido as her dad never plays. And it, it is what made me do the, the, the uh, guys who like gals that are guns reading. The film can't help but over-sexualize Alita because it has this really paternalistic view of her despite the in the film seems to be at war with itself about this right because it wants her to be this liberated empowered character but she doesn't make choices for herself until like the last 15 minutes of the movie yeah and even when she does make these choices they're motivated by her boyfriend it's just not a good look right it's not motivated by like, and again, we do get a little bit of this. This uh, she starts getting these flashbacks about her original mission to crash, uh, Zalem and and uh, Ajax. What's his name? I keep wanting to say Ajax because Ed Screen. What's the name of the Ed Norton's character? I don't know. She's supposed to kill Ed Norton. Nova. Nova, Nova, and Zalem are like the ultimate evil, and she's supposed to crash that. And that's the closest we get to a motivation for her is that she remembers that was her original mission and kind of connects the dots that Zalim is like this place of like all evil that exists on the surface of Earth. But that's the last 15 minutes of the movie. Right. And even then, she still seems perfectly happy with her relationship with Ido. Like, it's it's very frustrating for me and like is part of what stops me from liking the movie as much as I wanted to. Well, and I mean, that is a sort of, you know, like an error in feminism here in the film. And it does kind of explain that sort of what Proud Boy, whatever that bunch was, a tr- internet troll jerk yeah. faces that wanted to sort of tout this movie up and against Captain Marvel. Uh, though Captain Marvel's not without its problems. Yeah, go see our alternate universe episode about Captain Marvel that we weren't on. Yeah. I'd probably watch this movie before Captain Marvel. I would, too. It's because it's a lot cleaner, narratively. I mean, that's the thing. Captain Marvel's trying harder? Right. But Too yeah. hard? Well, well, Captain Marvel at least seems aware. The problem is Captain Marvel's aware. It, it seems aware, Too so when it aware? does miss... Exactly. When it missteps, it rings even hollow. It's that forced it, feminism. Yes. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I saw some essays about that when it came out. It's yeah. like, if you're forcing the issue, is it helping the issue? Right. Yeah, you, you making a point to go, isn't it cool that she's a girl? Makes it worse. Yeah. And f- f- say what you will about Alita, it doesn't do that that as bad. But it, right. it, it does... It does when it comes back to her relationship with Ido. Right. It keeps coming back to that. Well, and to like, her boyfriend as well. Yeah. Well, and Ido's like forcing her to be his replacement daughter. And he just decided to bring her back to life. Like the, the, the amount of agency that is constantly taken from her is not surprising because it's, you know, it's a Hollywood action movie starring a woman. Like that's just kind of how things go down. It's frustrating, though, because mm-hmm. it's, you know, you'd think Jim Cameron and Rod Rodriguez would be making more nuanced films at this point in their career, even if they were making, even when they are making $200 million movies. And that, that's what's frustrating for me. It's filmmakers that I have respected uh, as somebody who's grown up loving action cinema and, like, I've respected their craft as action filmmakers. It's frustrating that they haven't gotten smarter. And that, that's that's what really, like, just bums me out about the movie. I mean, we, we, we come to expect this from Cameron, right? He tries to do the sort of like uh, globalist, you know, diversity sort of pitch, and he makes dances with blue Pocahontas when he makes Avatar. I mean, so, you know, that's a thing. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it's the kind of, it's the same kind of blindness to social issues that give, gave us stuff in the 90s, right? Where you'd have Denzel Washington being the star of the movie The Siege. Uh, a film that, despite being set in America and about like terrorism and the the violation of people's civil rights, never mentions that the lead cop is a black man. Mm-hmm. Like what? In what universe is that not relevant? Not a thing. Yeah, exactly. And it's that same kind of thinking that gave us those kind of like really tone deaf films in the '90s that 
white audiences didn't bat an eye at because we wanted to believe in this this world where we had you know overcome these issues of sexism and racism and I I think you're right. James Cameron's kind of got his thumbprint on this film in that regard, where it it wants to be beyond these issues in some ways, and I think that's admirable. I don't. I understand the impulse to want to be beyond these issues and not talk about them, and like just oh, this is just the movie we made. Well, yeah, man, but a lot of people are going to see your movie, <laughs> and we're having conversations about this shit right now, especially when the both of you have worked with some gross dudes in your past. Like, just do better, y'all. Mm-hmm. That's all. Uh, and I, I, again, it's uh, Rosa Salazar deserves a better movie to be in, right? There's so few films of this budget led by a, you know, a, a Latinx person like do better. Mm-hmm. We deserve better as a film going public, I think. And I, I guess that's where I, I want to be mad, but I, I, I'm with you guys that, uh, especially our, you know, Arthur's gone to bat for this film's action. Uh, and I think that one is great. I want to pivot to that. I want to pivot to the form of this film and the, the cleanliness with which we get geography in this film, right? Like uh, motorball, we don't really ever understand the rules of, but it doesn't matter because we get that early scene, right? And we build, yeah. we build upon it. We get the motorball skirmish, which is pretty CGI light. Yeah. It's practical effects, right? Elite is kind of the only digital effect in that scene. And the rest of it seems to be stunt work. And so we we get to see what the movement of these rollerblades looks like in a pretty confined court. Yeah. And then we move it onto a track, and we make it all CGI. And now that we kind of understand how these bodies and movement with this ball work, it just kind of, like, it sets the foundation for a set piece to come. And a way that's just, like, that's good good scripting, and it's good filmmaking. Mm -hmm. It's it's really impressive to me to, like, say, hey, here's a, a teaser for a set piece you'll get later. So you kind of can start to understand this movement. And it's, you know, it's pretty standard stuff, right? It's nothing too revelatory. But it's just good fundamental action filmmaking, I think. And it's it's nice. It's it's good to see something like that. Especially with so many digital elements. Because I think that's been the big thing. And I, I don't want to dog on him. But Michael Bay and Transformers, I think, introduced these giant beat-em-up action films that were so digitally um, prevalent. You know, we've got the Transformers stuff specifically where you two robots are fighting each other, but you can't tell them apart. You don't know where they are. You don't know what's happening or who's who. And that really became the the form, I think, for a lot of big CGI action set pieces since those, you know, early Transformers movies. And so it's hard in a lot of big action blockbusters to be able to understand what's happening in a fight sequence or in a a set piece. And I think that's what's so nice about the, I guess, basicness of, what's being presented. I mean, it's not basic, but I mean, it comes across clean enough to look at it as a simple filmmaking. Yeah. It's, it's one of those films that makes you go, ah, man, isn't it great that speed racer laid the groundwork for stuff like this? Because it it is smart in using its digitalness. When we get the big motorball set piece, it's using the fact that it's digital to avoid cuts when it can. And and even the bar room where there are so many characters and so much happening on screen, uh, we still track really well with everything taking place, and it would be so easy um, in another director's hands to make that a mess and a jumble, and you don't know who's who or what's what, but there's so many little sequences going on in there and so many little individual moments between other tertiary characters uh, that it works surprisingly well. Yeah, you really get good spatial moment. continuity yeah. is what it is. It's, it's spatial continuity. Well, and it's the, these action beats uh, are also some of the only times we do get like real story advancement, right? We get real character motivation advancements. The bar fight is where we get Alita's statement of like, no, we're supposed to be the cops, you idiots. Like, mm-hmm. come on, help me stop this bad guy. Right. That's the one moment where we get a real big moment for her. And again, it it falls on deaf ears and it comes across as corny because she is so good natured and naive and, and Mary you know, Sue. And Mar- yeah, she's a huge Mary Sue. Yeah. I, but that's I'm OK with that. I am. A, I'm okay I am, too, because that. that's how action movies work. It's ideologically, intellectually dishonest to pretend that most action movie protagonists aren't Mary Sue's and Gary Stu's. It's just dumb. So we're not going to play with that ball. But nobody falls for it, right? It's funny when this bar full of knuckleheads laughs at her inspirational speech. It's moving but cheap when she uses a dog death to, like, kick ass. It feels very westerny. It feels very high noon or... Oh, big time. very much, yeah. 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 Uh, Arthur, you mentioned this off mic, though, and I I agree with you that it is really... It's... uh, They fridge the dog, which is just unnecessary and a cheap... It's a cheap uh, trick. Uh, they, then they fridge uh, Jennifer Connelly. 
uh, very unceremoniously. Yeah, just yeah, eyeballs and a just brain. Wrote her She's out of the movie. coming. We back. don't see what happens to her either, which is such a dumb choice. Why are you going to r- kill Jennifer Connelly off screen? <sighs> Maybe it wasn't really her. Yeah, poor Mahershala Ali too. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he has a satisfying death. He though. crushes that yeah. death scene. Oh, man. Do, getting to do a death scene where the person dying and the person monologuing are two different characters, it's that had cool. to have been a fun day for well, him. Well, that looks fatal. Yeah. yeah. Funny line. Uh, I don't have a whole lot else to say about this. I, I don't either. I, I do want to point out that there is a reading of the film that you could look at it as uh, Palestine, uh, the Gaza Strip, you know, with Zalem and the open-air prison. I, I, I just think there's that. Zalem being short for Jerusalem. Okay. And, and no, this sort right. of policed state, and yeah. it's unescapable open-air prison in which you live. Like, there's a way in which it sort of metaphorically works on that level, but I don't know that that's intentional in any way. Well, I had this, like, Catholic kind of thing, too, where, you know, everybody's working to try to attain entry into this sky city, this Salem, this heaven mm-hmm. uh, type place. But Yeah, I, I got uh, the vibe that I got from it in, in a similar vein, Arthur. I like, uh, I'm a big fan of lost technology in stories. I just like that as an idea. Like, uh, like Smoke Monsters? Oh, is that, is, that a, is that a lost technology in Lost? I don't know. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, I see your joke it's now. Exactly. A yeah, no, it's a pun. Yep, I gotcha. Uh, no, like, uh, let's say in your Game of Thrones is right, your Valerian yeah. steel, which is based on Damascus steel, which, fun fact, we literally still don't know how to make. Mm-mm. We forgot yeah. how. And that's, we don't know how to make a sword, y'all. It's 2019, and we can't figure out how to there's make a, one kind of sword. We don't know how to make sword it. We forgot how to make. That's cool. <laughs> I like that kind that of stuff. Fun. I like that the ultimate weapon in this world is just like, we can't fix it. Nobody knows how it works. I love that kind of story. And I, I, I guess that for me is something that's frustrating. Right? If we can't get more character growth, if the characters we do get are kind of dumb and boring boyfriend characters, couldn't we have gotten more about this Mars? Uh, this what, what is going the on? Moon battle? The moon battle? The moon I battle? I want for... the moon battle so bad. Oh, my gosh. Give me that for days. Seriously. The UMB? URM. URM. United Mars. The the Urm, yeah, is what they're called. We don't understand what the why does the Urm want to crash the rich people city? Does the Urm still exist? I want it. There, there's more about this world that like we never get to know. And I'm I'm with Arthur. I like being thrown into it without a 15 minute prologue or a long body of text at the start of the movie. Those are smart choices or voiceover. Yeah, who would have been bad? The stuff we don't get, I guess, is frustrating, right? And uh, there's moments where I like. That it's just a world that exists where nobody kind of remembers the history before the fall. I like those ideas. But it would have been nice context to have, I guess, because we don't really understand. We know that there's good good guys who are not rich and bad guys who are rich. And sure, that's interesting in and of itself. As Arthur pointed out, there's a whole class of 2019 to talk about with that. But even, you know, some of the other films this year that have wrestled with those subjects, we don't get much clarity of the conflict in Alita. And that's, yeah, yeah. All right, let's render a verdict. Shelf or trash? Alita, colon, battle angel. I go to you first, Dalton. What do you say? It's trash. I'm sorry. I like it. It's fine. I'm with Arthur. I would actually rewatch this happily. I mean, I'm not mad at it or anything. But to Dustin's point, we've seen this movie. We've talked about this movie on the show countless times. It's one of those episodes when we sit down to record. It's like we've done this episode so many times. We've kind of hit all the big points. So we just really nitpick a little bit and get to the end of it. So that that's really where it comes down for me. It's a fun watch. It's beautiful. It's a great Saturday afternoon movie. There's just not a lot of there there. Fair enough. What do you say, Arthur? Yeah, I'm it's, it's trash. I mean, very lightly trashing it, but uh, it's of all the movies this year, it's not one I would recommend that you have to see. And so it's definitely a trasher for me. I'm also going to say trash, but I'm also going to buy a ticket to the sequel if they get greenlit. Yes. Like, I want to I see more. I want more Or of the this TV world. series? Or the, oh, yeah, good knows. call. I think this will lend itself a lot better to a, a TV series. No, absolutely. I'd be I for agree. that. Doing, well, a, doing a push-up on your finger is cool. It is. It's very cool. I want, a, I want an arm. I want a robot arm. That's it hurts it. a lot. Does I've it? I've never done it in my life. Yeah. The, one, the one-arm whole-body push-up. Yeah. Upper torso push-up. You know why this episode had so little? It's because it's three white guys talking about a problematic movie made by other white guys. Like The conversations that are going to be happening that are really interesting around this listener are not here. You know, this is If ever there's been an episode where uh, it's good for us to remind you to go other places for your, your film analysis. Do that. Yeah, go go see what you know disabled film critics have to say about this. See what trans critics have to say about this. Because, you know, that's when we start talking about body augmentation and, like, idealized selves and, you know, uh, a body that automatically corresponds to what you want to be subconsciously. 
you throw away ideas like that in Alita that are rife for analysis, and I think they're still pretty shallow. Mm-hmm. But there's there's critics out there who have more interesting things to say than uh, interesting yeah. things to say than we do. They gain greater and easier purchase. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So for sure, uh, for sure, that's Alita Battle Angel. Uh, did you like what we had to say? Are you a person that has interesting, nuanced thoughts on this for whatever reason, whatever your experience and POV send is? Them, please, please let us know. You can send long form feedback to the show to uh, GoodTrashGenreCast at Gmail dot com. Uh, you can rate, review, or subscribe to the show wherever you get podcasts. You know the deal. Leave us a five-star review. It'll make us feel good if we remember to check for five-star reviews. Maybe we'll read it or something. I don't know. Uh, if you want to stay up to date on social media, don't do it. But if you want to, you can follow us at good underscore trash on Twitter. Uh, and if you want to help contribute to the show financially, you can go to patreon.com forward slash GTM to help us keep the lights on. That's it for the boring social media stuff. Next week, we continue our 2019 catch-up. It's Dustin's pick. We are moving into host picks now. Each one of us is going to have a 2019 blind spot to bring to the table. Dustin, Dalton stole your job and my job this episode. He did. He thinks he's a one-man show. He I'm does. just really tired. You know, we <laughs> try to put my foot on the gas. We just let him do it, you know, by himself, I guess. <laughs> Fine, buddy. Uh... Next week, Dalton will be talking about... <laughs> He'll be talking about a Nick Cage film noir art house film called Kill Chain. Uh, it is available on the Amazon Primes. It is released from Millennium as a production company that Cage has worked with about seven times now, which includes some of the cats from Mandy. And uh, it's uh, it's an art house neo-noir film noir starring the great Nick Cage. Is it an art house? It is an art house. From what I understand, yeah, I haven't seen it yet. Okay. So I'm watching this cold, but from what I've read in descriptions and seen it around, and it, yeah, sounds like it's a good movie. Kill Chain? Kill Chain. All right. Is the name of the movie. It was um, definitely undersung, went under the radar in a lot of ways, but um, unlike Mandy, um, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, so I'm um, not that Mandy wasn't a lot of fun. I was but unlike, say. unlike Mandy, I think this is going to be uh, one of those movies that's not going to make a lot of lists, but maybe it should be part of a conversation from the acclaimed director of blunt force trauma i don't know that that director's as critically acclaimed as the producers want me to believe <laughs> so uh there you go dear listener i have picked something schlocky and slightly art house i'm very confused by this pick uh, good that's what i was going you for. still haven't seen climax he did uh he did write the replacement killers okay well that's an interesting credit i'm excited about this, this is gonna be a weird watch oh, i love nick cage well, you yeah, know, you know, we stay in the cage. Also, uh, Enrico Colantoni's in it, so oh, uh, uh, okay, very All here right. for Keith Mars. Yep, I'm on board now. All right, well, and good. Annabella Costa. Okay, good cast. This could go. This could be interesting. It could go any direction. It definitely isn't going to show up on a exactly film. Exactly why I wanted to pick it. Yeah, one of the characters is the very bad woman. What the hell is this movie going to be? <laughs> then there's the old sniper, Erickson, the woman in red, the curious assassin. Is Krista Berg in this movie? Gigi's friend, Sanchez, the Gigi's mean assassin. Just Gigi's friend? No, Gigi's not in it. Just Gigi's <laughs> friend. The mean assassin? Is that what you just said? Oh, my God. Yes, I did. What there, a film. Well, I want to have the movie about the kind assassin, the kindly assassin, the musical, and the magic school bus. That's I'm the movie very I Very curious. Yeah, I love Nick Cage. Uh, he's also rocking a real hard uh, beard and glasses look in this picture. So uh, I'm here for it. Oh, God. Wow, they really just <laughs> deliberately ripped off the John Wick 3 color scheme, didn't they? Well, a little bit. So there you go, dear listener. That's what's coming on down the pike. You keep watching and we'll keep talking. Uh, we will all the way till then. And we'll see you all next time. I'm not sure.